Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. So we learned a lot about that man, and I think we learned a lot about how he became president, too, because in the end, his ability to surmount all this uh, revealed qualities of, of personality and persistence, and, and in, in the context of the day, patriotism. Washington honestly believed in the American cause. There's, there's no question about that. That's Mark Edward Lender, author of the new book, Cabal, The Plot Against General Washington, and he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is sponsored by the Museum of the American Revolution, exploring the ideas, events, and legacies of America's revolutionary beginnings. Plan your visit today. For more information, visit www.amrevmuseum.org. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another edition of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today we have a very special guest, if you've listened to the show, you're familiar with his work, Mark Edward Lender, author of the new book, Cabal, The Plot Against General Washington. Today in our modern world, George Washington holds a special place in the hearts and minds of all Americans. We all carry a portrait of him around in our wallets, on our dollar bill, every day. He's almost untouchable by modern standards. But in Mark Edward Lender's new book, we see a very different time period. We see 1777 and 1778, a period of time when, as Mark will say in the interview, the outcome of the American Revolution was far more uncertain. Very few people were critical of George Washington's character in 1777, but many people were critical of his will say, history of success on the battlefield. Especially given that in their mind, there was a viable alternative who actually did win battles in the form of Horatio Gates. So today, Mark will touch lightly on his book. Uh, of course, not to give away too many details. Um, about a conspiracy of sorts that developed against the indispensable man, George Washington. Uh, in the fall of 1777, and it's every bit as riveting as any Hollywood thriller. And I think we see a different side of the Commander-in-Chief than we're certainly used to. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Mark Edward Lender. Mark Edward Lender, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you, Brady. I'm, I'm glad to be here. I'm looking forward to it. Tell us about your background. I am a retired history professor and university administrator. I got my doctorate in American history at Rutgers University way back uh, in 1975, uh, virtually the Stone Ages, I guess, these days. Uh, spent most of my career at Kane University, where I was a history professor and retired eight years ago as vice president for academic affairs. So I've seen both the administrative and the teaching side of the profession. These days, I guess you could call me, uh, uh, while I'm retired, uh, I'm still an active, uh, active author and historian, and uh, so I intend to be. What first drew your interest into this topic? Well, as I'm sure a, a lot of folks can tell you, uh, one research project leads to another. A few years ago, uh, with a co-author, uh, I wrote a book called uh, Fatal Sunday, uh, the Monmouth campaign, uh, George Washington, the Monmouth campaign and the politics of battle. And in that uh, book, I had to deal with the criticism Washington faced in late 1777, early 1778, due to the disappointments he incurred uh, on the battlefield in, in late 1777. It was a pretty tough time for him. The criticism mounted. 
And as I looked, I began to find more and more material indicating that uh, this was more than criticism. This was actually uh, a, a challenge to Washington's command of the army, which is something that uh, most modern historians have more or less dismissed for, for many, many years. Uh, while they credited uh, Washington with enduring a, a great deal of, of carping criticism, uh, that was one thing, and that was almost to be expected, given Washington's record. But uh, to actually think that that criticism could gel into something that would actually threaten his command, well, no, that that uh, that, that fell out of favor. Actually, about 80 years ago, when I, when a fellow uh, wrote a book um, indicating that uh, he couldn't find evidence of any conspiracy against Washington, and. Uh, that's pretty much the way it lay until, uh, as I said, a, a few years ago when I just began to suspect that uh, as more and more evidence piled up that uh, there, was, uh, there was fire uh, underneath all the smoke. So uh, that led me to look very specifically at whether or not something historians have come to call the Conway Cabal was real or not. And uh, in my latest book, uh, I have indeed concluded that uh, the challenge to Washington's authority as commander-in-chief was not just carping criticism, it was quite real. What was the state of the war in the fall of 1777? In the fall of 1777, the, uh, uh, the fate of the revolution was problematic. There were two things going on, and, and we'll talk about George Washington first. His army, the main army uh, of, of the Continental Line, had had a pretty bad time of it, beginning in, in September when they lost at Brandywine. Uh, the uh, counterattack in October at Germantown failed. Finally, in November, the uh, British were able to take the Delaware River forts, which had been impeding the Royal Navy's ability to resupply Washington, who had by then, uh, excuse me, how General uh, William Howe, who had by then taken Philadelphia. So things were pretty grim. Uh, we, we've got to get some perspective here, and the perspective is, is not of us today looking back 250 years or so later, but the perspective of those who were living the experience of the revolution in 1777, and it was pretty grim. I mean, they'd lost their de facto capital. Their commander-in-chief uh, was having a, a terrible time on the battlefield, and the, uh, the ability to win that war was highly questionable, and people were justifiably concerned, and, and we have to keep in mind that uh, there was precedent for dealing with uh, with uh, generals who weren't winning. Uh, there was the experience of the uh, French and Indian War. They called it over here uh, the Seven Years' War, probably a more accurate uh, term. But in North America, as one British commander-in-chief was unable to produce a victory over the French, they were successively fired, recalled to Great Britain, until uh, finally they sent over Jeffrey Amherst, who turned out to be a war winner. But the precedent was there. If you were not producing the military and political results that the ministry wanted, you were relieved and sent home. Uh, that was just the way it was. I mean, uh, generals were hired to win wars, and when they didn't, uh, Parliament acted. And Cong uh, the Continental Congress knew this. This was discussed on the floor of Congress, and certainly uh, uh, it was discussed privately between members of Congress and other patriots uh, uh, just out of Congress. Even some officers uh, in the Continental Army uh, understood that uh, during the French and Indian War, uh, particularly William Pitt, who, who ran the war effort with a, a strong hand, simply didn't tolerate uh, officers who couldn't win. So that was sort of the background that, that Washington faced. On the other hand, uh, from the north, uh, the northern army, which Washington, uh, to which Washington had sent uh, strong reinforcements in the fall of 1777. Up there, Horatio Gates had uh, compelled John Burgoyne to capitulate in what they called a convention. But in essence, that meant an entire British army had surrendered. So you have this juxtaposition of, of the records of Washington and Gates. And here you had, had one officer who had, barely clinging uh, to survival, and, and another officer who had forced the, uh, the surrender of an entire enemy force. So uh, obviously there were going to be comparisons. 
the comparisons were generally not favorable to Washington. It was a, a very, very difficult time for the commander-in-chief. How was George Washington's record perceived at this point? Well, yeah, well I'm not going to argue with, uh, with Washington's status as the indispensable man. I happen to think that's true. And in another context, in another essay, I've said exactly that and explained why. But he was not indispensable as of late 1777. Uh, uh, this was uh, a man who, and, and people credited him, him with doing his best, but his critics did not think he was up to the job. And, and let's put this in context. Too frequently, uh, Washington's critics and Washington's allies have been depicted as sort of in a good guys, bad guys context. Uh, that's nonsense. The people who criticized Washington, and even though even those, and we'll talk about them, uh, would would have been just as happy to see Washington depart. Uh, they were not bad guys. These were patriots. I mean, some of the most astringent critics of Washington had had sons fighting in Washington's army, and as often were wounded, compiling wonderful combat records in Washington's army. They didn't want to lose the war. Uh, they weren't even antagonistic against Washington on a personal basis. Uh, they had come to believe that he could not win the war and then, therefore, quite reasonably to ask whether or not he was the man to keep in the top job. I think that was, uh, uh, that was the, the atmosphere uh, surrounding Washington in late 1777. So it was a very precarious time for the men. And, and uh, beyond that, on a personal basis. Uh, he felt this very keenly. He was a man with a great deal of pride and also a man who honestly believed that his vision for the army uh, was the way to win the war. He, he did not take umbrage against his critics simply because they were criticizing him. He realized that a man in his position was going to take criticism, and, and he said that. But what he feared was that uh, if he were forced out or if his critics really had their way, uh, what their way would have led to was a defeat in the war. He honestly believed that he was the man with the vision to win that war. And I think it hurt him to realize, I know it hurt him to realize that uh, there were patriots, uh, good, honest patriots who believed in the American cause, who came to doubt that Washington was the man to do the job. And that, that's a pretty serious state to be in. Horatio Gates has been riding a wave of success by the fall of 77. Talk about his history of command. I, I think uh, Gates is an interesting character. And he's, he's had a hard time with historians, uh, partly because that he was identified with Washington's critics, and indeed he was one. Uh, and, and certainly... Uh, because his military reputation absolutely collapsed after he was defeated at Camden in South Carolina in 1780. Uh, that was a, a pretty catastrophic defeat, and his military reputation never really recovered. But in 1777, um, Gates was a genuine American hero, and we have to concede that. Even those who today will look on him as the bad guy who, who criticized Washington, who wanted Washington's job, uh, Gates was a solid military professional. He's been too often depict, uh, depicted as, as someone who was incompetent or, or uh, was in the right place at the right time and, and took advantage of, of uh, work that other commanders had done at Saratoga and took credit for the victory. That, that's really... Uh, I, I'm, I don't buy that. I really don't. Uh, Gates had a solid career as a professional officer in the British Army. He saw combat in the Seven Years' War. He had all kinds of administrative assignments, both in North America and elsewhere. During the Seven Years' War, he gained a lot of experience in, uh, in the minutiae, the back office stuff of keeping armies in the field, how to keep the records, how to make sure people got paid, how to make sure supplies got delivered on time, how to make sure orders were issued clearly, uh, how to make sure that officers in different commands uh, knew what other commanders were doing. This is the kind of stuff that armies need and the professional armies develop and, and make routine 
the American Army, the Continental Army, simply didn't have that kind of expertise available on a wide basis early in the war, and Gates had it. He served for, uh, earlier in the war, he served very capably as Washington's adjutant general, who was the guy who, the adjutant general was the individual who took care of the record keeping and making sure that orders were relayed and drafted correctly. Uh, and, and all of that administrative uh, routine that armies simply have to have if they're going to function effectively. Washington was very grateful for uh, Gates' support in that regard. It's when Gates hunkering for a, a field command, a military command. And by the way, he had military uh, command experience uh, in, uh, in during the revolution, early in the revolution. In 1776, he did a very good job reorganizing and uh, the American army that had retreated uh, from the disaster in Canada and uh, and really reorganizing the army, putting it back in shape so that it could fight again by late 1776. So we're not talking about a buffoon here. We're talking about a very accomplished officer. And did he see himself as an alternative to to Washington? Probably not originally, but there were others who did. There's no question that there were others who did. And they wrote him letters asking him to come back from the North, back to the Philadelphia Theater, and quite literally to save the Continental Army. So was he an alternative to Washington? There were certainly people and people in high places who saw him as exactly that. Who is Thomas Conway, and why are his letters so critical to this affair? <laughs> Conway is an interesting character. Uh, interesting characters are not necessarily uh, admirable figures. Uh, Conway was also an accomplished officer. He was Irish-born. His parents uh, moved to France quite early, so let's call him uh, uh, Irish-French uh, or, or, or Franco-Irish. Uh, uh, he grew up, he was bilingual, he spoke French, he spoke English, and a lot of the officers who came over from France to further their fortunes in the Continental Army did not speak English, so uh, he hit it off pretty well with a lot of Americans when he came over. He was uh, a colonel in the French Army. He wanted uh, to increase or, or get a better rank over here. And, uh, and he admitted he, he wanted to further his career over here, polish his resume, and go back to France and get a promotion there. And ultimately he did, by the way, but that's, that's another story. He became disillusioned with Washington. He was with Washington's main army. Uh, and... He, there's no question he was an accomplished brigadier. The Continental Congress made him a brigadier general. He was a very good brigade commander. Uh, there is, that's not saying he was necessarily a popular man. He was popular with some, but he had an acerbic personality or a, a sort of a, 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 an edge to him that a lot of people found offensive simply because Conway did not tolerate fools lightly. If he saw Americans who he considered... Uh, if he didn't say so, he considered a lot of American officers to be amateurs while he was a, a, a veteran professional. And he kind of let that attitude, uh, uh, he sort of emanated that attitude, and, and people picked up on it. Uh, a lot of folks considered him, while competent, not necessarily somebody you're going to invite over for a drink. He fell into the orbit of another major general, Thomas Mifflin, uh, who was very close to Major General Horatio Gates, and he became identified with those two as criticisms of Washington built. Nobody at the time, by the way, used the term the Conway Cabal. Uh, that was a, a, an appellation that, that came out of 19th century historians. But what Conway did in the November of 1777, he wrote a letter to General Gates, in which he made some pretty critical observations on Washington's leadership and said bluntly that uh, he wished to serve under Horatio Gates. You know, in November of 1777, there were a lot of letters sent by various officers complimenting Gates on his victory at Saratoga. Anthony Wayne wrote one. Uh, Anthony Wayne, uh, we're talking about a man Washington came to trust uh, uh, 
with a great deal of responsibility later in the war, uh, who, who said he was tired of losing battles and that he was anxious to have uh, a, a relationship with Horatio Gates. Plenty of other officers did, too. I counted up a bunch of them. Um, and I'm, I'm trying to think if in, in the recent book how many of them I actually cited. Uh, a fairly good number. That, uh, And I, I just wonder how many others did not survive to go into an archive somewhere. So Gates was seen as sort of a man of the hour. The difference between the Conway letter and all the others was that Conway's went public. Boy, that's a little wrong. It did and it didn't. Here's the story, very briefly. He did send a letter to Horatio Gates. It was critical of Washington, complimentary to Gates. It was a private letter, not meant for public distribution, uh, not even meant for anybody's eyes but Horatio Gates's. But other eyes saw it. One, at least, was a set owned by James Wilkinson. Uh, every now and again, history produces a true knave, and James Wilkinson, uh, I think, wins that contest during the American Revolution. Wilkinson was tasked by Horatio Gates with bearing the official notice of Burgoyne's surrender at Saratoga to Congress. It was an honor given to a junior officer, and, and he had been an aide to Gates during the Saratoga campaign. So he was tasked with taking this official dispatch from Gates down to Congress. Uh, on the way, he stopped at the headquarters of uh, Major General William Alexander, better known as Lord Sterling. He claimed a latched Scottish earldom. He spent the evening drinking with Sterling and two of Sterling's aides, uh, uh, McWilliams and future president James Monroe, who were aides to, uh, to, to General Sterling. They had a lot to drink. Sterling retired early, and as he, as Wilkinson stayed up with McWilliams and Monroe, he sort of tipped them that he'd seen this letter uh, from Conway to Gates, and he he told McWilliams and probably Monroe, but certainly McWilliams, what he had seen. Now we never have seen a copy of the actual letter itself. It might exist somewhere. We don't know. Uh, maybe it was destroyed, but uh, to this day, nobody knows where the original might be or what even happened to the original. But the excerpt that uh, Wilkinson told McWilliams was then, as uh, the next day, uh, Wilkinson rides off to, to Congress, but... Uh, McWilliams goes to his boss, General Sterling, and tells him what he'd heard, and Sterling then writes a letter to Washington. So the cat is out of the bag. Washington already has a problematic relation with Gates, and now he's got Gates. He's got some proof, at least, that he thinks indicates the existence of some sort, if, if not a conspiracy, at, at, at least a coterie of individuals were critical of Washington, and now Washington thinks he can strike back. He sends a very curt letter to to uh, Conway saying, this is what I've seen, this is what I've heard. Um, and, and Conway, at that point, is he's completely blindsided. Uh, now we've got uh, a letter I wrote privately to, to Horatio Gates, the commander-in-chief has seen. I have no idea how he's seen it. Uh, he has written me this letter. My God, what do I do? Uh, he writes back to Washington uh, denying any, any any evil intent, but he's also in touch with Gates saying, what on earth is happening here? Now, Gates knows that he's been compromised. In the end, in the end, uh, it becomes, uh, <laughs> as those who find out about this, the, the circle begins to spread. Uh, uh, Thomas Mifflin, we'll talk about Mifflin in a minute. He's key to this whole thing. He writes to uh, Gates saying, for heaven's sake, be careful about your correspondence. You can't have this kind of thing go public. Uh, as it turns out, Mifflin was one of those who, uh, in November, writing those letters, was most strident in, in saying, Gates, you've got to come down here and, and, and save the situation. So Wilkinson, uh, Wilkinson when confronted with all of this, uh, spins a story that is completely improbable. I have I've been able to unwind what he actually said. He, 
actually blamed the whole, tried to blame the whole thing on, on Alexander Hamilton and implied that, uh, that Washington was, was hiding Hamilton. Hamilton had absolutely nothing to do with this. Uh, he had made a visit to, to Gates's headquarters at Washington's request, uh, that November, but uh, had not seen this letter, certainly had nothing to do with making it public. So it was a real mess, and it was an embarrassment, and, and Washington used it to ambush Gates and embarrass him. There's no question about that. Washington, at, at this point, uh, really wanted to take some steps against those he knew he were, you know, were, were criticizing him, and, and this was a way to get it, uh, get at Gates. Now, I must say that uh, as much brouhaha as the Conway letter created, it was not the key to the cabal, but it did create an atmosphere of mistrust, uh, an atmosphere of anxiety uh, that clouded everything that happened thereafter. Uh, And and Gates and Washington never really made it up again, and and Conway uh, and Washington cordially loathed one another. Uh, Some of the most... uh, vituperative uh, language Washington ever used, and, and he was a man with a great deal of restraint. Uh, he, he used in letters describing uh, uh, describing Conway to Gates and, and Washington's staff, Hamilton, John Lawrence, uh, and a number of others, simply unloaded on Conway uh, when this letter became public. And it, it was a uh, a real fracas, and it was, uh, you know, it's one thing to have officers sniping at each other, but it's another thing when senior officers in the Army uh, start going at it publicly. That That is something that uh, that no government wants, and, and a government trying to run a revolution has got to consider this to be pretty alarming. So it was a real mess. How does Congress respond? Describe the factions that will emerge in light of these letters. Uh, how does Congress respond to all of this? Well, Congress did have factions, and you had uh, those who were leery of Washington even before he began to lose battles. And let me just make this as, as, as clean as I can. You had those who some historians have called radicals, but uh, these were individuals who believed in fighting a war with militia. They were Republican ideologues to a certain extent. They believed that the militia was the citizenry in arms, and this was the guarantor of liberty. They did not like standing armies, were considered threats to liberty. Washington insisted on building a regular continental army on the European model. He said, the only way I'm going to beat European professionals is by having American professionals. So there was an ideological gap between Washington and and some members of Congress. to us, it almost seems uh, a nonsensical argument that you know, we shouldn't have a regular continental army. But in the context of of the 1770s, when Republican ideology really meant something, again, we've got to put ourselves back in the perspective of the time. Uh, there was this edge against uh, Washington based upon his preference for a regular American army. But couple that with a belief that Washington couldn't win the war and that in Gates we had a guy who might win the war, probably could win the war, you you can begin to see how Congress might factionalize. You had individuals like, well, John Adams uh, and his his sort of distant cousin Samuel Adams were very critical of Washington. Later on, they try to deny it, but there's no question of the paper trail they left of, of their criticisms of the general. You had James Lovell, perhaps the uh, one of the most uh, ideological members of Congress, who was just uh, absolutely a, a opposed to Washington and uh, very, very ardent in his belief that uh, Horatio Gates was the man of the hour. Lovell was one of these fellows who was a, 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 an astringent critic of Washington, but whose son was in Washington's army. He was a, a continental officer in one of the Massachusetts regiments a fine combat record. So again, it's not that Washington, uh, it's not that James Lovell was somehow uh, wearing a black hat and out to get to Washington. And he, he wanted to win the war, he really questioned whether or not Washington could do it. On the other hand, you had individuals like Henry Lawrence. Henry Lawrence, uh, in December of 1777, became president of, of Continental Congress. He was uh, a delegate from South Carolina became an ally of Washington and was uh, did his best to keep 
Congress in line. And, and let's also have a word about Congress here. In 1777, late, Congress is essentially exiled in York, Pennsylvania. Philadelphia has fallen to the British Army. And the states are having trouble getting both the, the financing and, and the other wherewithal to, to keep their delegations at uh, fully staffed out all the way out in York, 100 miles west of Philly. And it was during this time when Congress was struggling to get 20, 22, 23 members on the floor all at once. We're not talking about a great deal of, of people here. We're talking about a small group. And if you had some really articulate, really active individuals who wanted to push an issue one way or the other, uh, they would have more influence or, or more chance of having influence than they would if they were uh, uh, dealing with a much larger group of individuals. Uh, Henry Lawrence knew that and did his best to try and reconcile people. I mean, there was a war to fight and there were all kinds of other things to do. But he did his best to steer criticisms away from Washington, not always successfully, but he did his best to, uh, to balance things. And he had allies and in, in other members of, of, of Congress. He also had an ally on Washington's staff. So he was able to keep very well briefed on what Washington was thinking, what the Army was thinking. And that was his son, Lieutenant Colonel John Lawrence, who was very, very close uh, to Washington, a member of what Washington referred to as his military family, uh, best of friends with a, a, another young aide to Washington, Alexander Hamilton. And through the, this, this channel of communication uh, with John Lawrence and then frequently Alexander Hamilton, uh, Henry Lawrence was probably the delegate in Congress best briefed on, on what the army was actually, or at least what the senior commanders of the army were actually thinking. He was able to balance things fairly well, although he admitted to his son in private I mean, that uh, Washington at times he believed was in deep, deep trouble and that uh, Congress was listening to uh, those he called, quote, prompters and actors. Uh, in other words, people who were really articulate and vociferous and, and voicing their criticisms of the general. It was a, a, a real balancing act on, on Henry Lawrence's part, and I think he deserves a lot of credit uh, in maintaining his support and making sure that the critics of, of Washington did not get out of hand. What is the Board of War, and why is it so important to this story? What we're talking about in the Board of War is the instrument of Congress that, for a time, posed the biggest threat to Washington's command. But the Board of War was established by Congress in 1776, and it was made up of congressional delegates originally headed by, by John Adams. And its job was to take over the administration of the war effort, uh, make sure that the Army was getting the supplies that it needed, make sure that the uh, uh, record-keeping was done and routine military correspondence was taken off the backs of, of Congress as a whole, and it was uh, too big a job for all of Congress to, to tackle while, while there was diplomacy, Indian affairs, financial affairs, relations with individual states, whatever it took to get the, uh, the Articles of Confederation uh, drafted uh, and off the ground. It was just too much. So the Board of War was supposed to take over these functions, but it really didn't work out that well because the Board of War was composed of delegates who were, were pulled in different directions. In 1777, the Board of War was reorganized so that it would be not composed of delegates of Congress, but by professionals, outside professionals, non-members of Congress, with expertise in managing the war effort, people who knew about quartermaster operations, who knew about commissary operations, who knew about the administrative minutia of, of keeping a war effort together. Now, the individual who worked most closely with Congress in setting up this new board of war was Major General Thomas Mifflin of Pennsylvania. He had been Quartermaster General, and in fact, while he uh, was beginning to talk to Congress, he was Quartermaster General. He was at odds with Washington. He had been very close to Washington early in the war. He had lost faith in Washington. He was angry that Nathaniel Green's influence with Washington had grown uh, and as Mifflin saw it, Green's influence had had, uh, had grown at, at the expense of, of Mifflin's. 
Washington was uh, not happy with Mifflin's performance as quartermaster general. Uh, nevertheless, Mifflin was very popular with members of Congress. And when it came to organizing the board of war, Congress took Mifflin's advice, really did not pay attention to the commander in chief, uh, particularly when it came to reorganizing that board of war. And then Mifflin did something that was quite extraordinary. Having reorganized the board of war, he persuaded Congress, and Congress is very clear about this, it was Mifflin who persuaded the Board of War to offer Horatio Gates, by this time really at odds with Washington, the presidency of the Board of War. And that made Gates Washington's titular superior because the Army was supposed to report to the Board of War. Washington was appalled. His staff was appalled. Uh, what you had in the Board of War was a group that was put together ostensibly to take the burdens of, of routine things off of Congress and even take the burdens of routine things off of the Commander-in-Chief, things like storing equipment that wasn't being used, taking charge of British prisoners of war so that the Army didn't have to worry about that kind of thing keeping routine records so that the Army didn't have to worry about that sort of thing. But from the very beginning, Mifflin's influence, and then shortly thereafter, Gates's influence at the Board of War began to tell, and that influence was used in a direct effort to, in effect, take control of critical aspects of Army functions, put it into the day-to-day -day operations of the Army, and all of it at Washington's command expense. Let me give you an example. One of the first things the Board of the War did uh, in December was appoint Thomas Conway, uh, a man who was anathema to Washington by this point, as Inspector General of the Army. Now, that was bad enough, but if they'd named anybody Inspector General of the Army at this point, uh, Washington's people would have balked, and they did. Here's why. Uh, a lot of this has been uh, lost in, in the, the anger over Conway's appointment. Conway was not only appointed, he was made a major general. Uh, he had been the junior brigadier general. Congress made him, again, this is at Mifflin's uh, insistence, a major general, jumping him over all of the other brigadier generals, and Washington simply had to, to talk his officers down. They were threatening mass resignations over this. But the law, the resolution that Congress passed creating the inspector generalship did not make this critical individual a staff officer of the commander-in-chief. It made the man report directly to the Board of War. Why was this important? The inspector general was tasked with training the army, coming up with standard drill, uh, with keeping reports on the performance of individual officers, uh, right on down to regimental officers. I mean, in effect, Washington was going to have nothing to say about how his army was trained about the kinds of tactical evolutions it would learn. Uh, he was not even to evaluate the performance of his own officers. And if to any commander-in-chief, this was utterly unacceptable. And it was not just the appointment of Conway to the job, it was the way the job was framed. Uh, an officer, an important officer, was reporting not to the commander-in-chief, but reporting to the Board of War. In other words, taking these vital functions of command away from the commander-in-chief. Uh, it was well on your way to, you know, why have a commander-in-chief if you really couldn't command your army? If you look at the actual resolution itself, and it's too much to go into the, uh, the details of it here, although I've, I've mentioned a number of them, what you were talking about almost is creating a parallel commanding general. And that would have been unacceptable to, to any, any commander-in-chief, not just George Washington. Uh, it, was, uh, it was quite something. There were other examples. When, when Gates arrived in January of 1778, 
he undertook an initiative uh, to straighten out commissary functions. Now, the commissary functions in the Continental Army, we're talking about the, uh, the, the period of, of Valley Forge right now, commissary operations were falling apart. And there was indeed a, a largely ineffectual commissary general. But what Gates did was he did not fire or ask that Congress or even Washington fire the, the standing commissary general or try to reform the existing commissary department, which was under uh, Washington's control, or, or should have been, he created a parallel organization. He called his new agents superintendents, and they were put into the field in direct competition with the purchasing agents of the established commissary department, trying to buy the same supplies, trying to buy them in the same areas. So you had competing commissary operations uh, that not only competed against themselves, but because all of this was going on in Pennsylvania and Pennsylvania was trying to help the Continental Army, it had its own people in the field trying to do the same thing. So you had three competing groups. Uh, it was an administrative mess of, of the first order. Uh, but again, you're taking away a function from the main army, uh, Washington now has no say over what his, what the commissary operations are doing. So uh, there's strike two. Then Thomas Mifflin comes up with an idea to reform quartermaster operations. He would have divided the quartermaster department into several departments, had a very weak quartermaster general whose main responsibility really would have been to the board of war, uh, just as now the commissary operation is reporting to the board of war. A quartermaster general should have been an indispensable staff member of the commander-in-chief, and now that would have been gone. I mean, this is the kind of thing that was striking directly at Washington's ability to command his own army. If he had stayed in the army under these circumstances, he would have been nothing but just another general. I mean, uh, doing what other people were doing, what the Board of War was telling him to do. I mean, the Board of War was never envisioned by Congress to be uh, an operational unit. It was supposed to be a backup, a support unit. Now it's really, in effect, trying to take over the army. And there's there's really no other way to phrase that. And uh, rather than go into a long a long explanation here. I hope that's clear enough. Uh, another example. As president of the Board of War, Gates began to create units, uh, artillery units, for example, and, and uh, have them specifically not under the command of Henry Knox, who was the Continental Army's chief of artillery and Washington's command uh, man. He began to move units around without telling Washington uh, and really getting... Washington getting no explanation as to why Gates was doing what he was doing. And uh, one of the, you know, the, really the final straw was Gates, while the army is struggling to survive at, at Valley Forge, Gates decides to launch an invasion of Canada um, without telling Washington. Washington was informed only after the decision had been made to do this. Uh, Washington was aghast. Uh, his, his, his chief officers were aghast. Uh, Congress acquiesced, uh, all except for Henry Lawrence, who from the very beginning said this was nonsense. But you get a sense of, of each step is chipping away at a major part of Washington's authority over his own army. And that was never Congress's original intention uh, for the Board of War, but Congress acquiesced when the Board began to do that. I, you know, today there is a term for this, and the Army calls it mission creep. Uh, corporate America calls it scope creep. When an organization uh, created for one purpose uh, begins to accrete authority and move into areas uh, for which it was never intended. So this, I mean, this is hardly a unique uh, phenomenon we're talking about, but it was a dangerous one from what, uh, what, uh, from Washington's perspective. And the board of war, um, later in the war, when Washington was able to reassert its authority, went back to its original purpose and Washington got along fine with it. But right now, Washington saw the board of war as a direct and, and threatening antagonist. How does the cabal come undone? 
I think the final straw was Gates's, uh, what he called it was, quote, an eruption into Canada, when finally Washington was able to make his voice heard. And here's how he did it. Now, Washington has always been given tremendous credit for uh, keeping the army subordinate to civilian authority. And this is something in which Washington firmly believed himself. I mean, he never saw himself as a Caesar or, or, uh, or, or a Cromwell. But he could play political hardball when he had to, and that sometimes meant playing one civilian body off against another to get his own way. He did that in this case, and here's how he did it. In January of 1778, Congress, realizing that the army is on the verge of falling apart, creates what they call a committee at camp. It went under several other names, but generally the committee at camp is the name we hear most often. And these fellows left York and actually went to Valley Forge, where they stayed for several months. And Washington was able to deal directly with them showing them what was wrong with Gates's commissary plan, what was wrong with Mifflin's quartermaster plan, and what was certainly wrong with the decision to invade Canada. One by one on these issues, Washington brought the committee at camp around. And we're talking about between who was, a, you know, who was able to be there uh, four to five members of Congress, you know, roughly 25% of those who could muster you know, that, that Congress could get to the floor at any one time, they became firmly attached to Washington's perspective on all of this business. And one by one, they sent reports back to Congress. And one by one, those reports began to tell. Henry Lawrence made sure that people understood that the commissary operation was disastrous, that the quartermaster operation was disastrous, that Washington needed an inspector general who would report to him, that he needed a quartermaster general who would report to him. He needed a commissary general who would report to him. Unity of command remains today an essential principle uh, of military science or military art. And this is what Washington insisted on. And, and when he actually had Gates proposing to invade Canada. Where on earth would the troops come from? Where would the supplies, where would the money come from? Uh, at this point, Congress woke up and they began to unravel all of these resolutions that had threatened Washington's authority. By the end of February, the beginning of March, Washington was breathing very, very easy. It had been a, a very, very tense several months. But at this point, Congress woke up to the reality uh, of what was going on. Uh, Joseph Reed of Pennsylvania wrote a, a very, very telling letter. Uh, he, he was on the committee at camp, and he wrote back to Congress to another delegate of Pennsylvania. And the end of that letter is really quite interesting. Where he says that uh, you can't make a man commander. He's, he's, and he never mentions Washington's name, but he said you can't give a man authority and then begin to pass a bunch of measures that undermine that authority. Either back the man or get rid of him, change the man. And he very clearly said, back Washington. There's, there's no question about that. But he, he, he summed up the entire thing. You can't call a guy commander-in-chief and then enact a whole bunch of things that undercut his authority as commander-in-chief. Uh, Give the man the authority or get rid of the man. Change, change the man. And he said, don't do that. Washington is the man. Keep him. And, and that's really what, what Henry Lawrence was able to persuade uh, Congress to do. Doesn't mean everybody who was there that, you know, in line with Washington doesn't mean everybody still trusted Washington. Uh, but uh, any, any chance that Washington was going to be forced into a situation which he resigned pretty much evaporated. What is the legacy of the cabal, in your opinion? Why does this event really still matter for us today? You know, it matters, I think, because it tells us a lot about how Washington was able to function. Uh, one of the chief virtues of the man was patience, and I'm, I'm, I'm far from the first historian to, uh, to say that that was a, 
a, a great virtue at Nimble Washington. Uh, he could endure a lot of criticism, but he could pick his moment when it came to a counterattack. Uh, he knew when to strike at Gates, when that, that Conway letter was actually a gift. It, it gave him a chance uh, to strike back. Uh, he knew how to deal with allies. He made allies of the members of the committee at camp and, and had them really carry the battle with the rest of Congress. Uh, he could pick people. Now, of course, he made mistakes. Benedict Arnold was a classic example. But, uh, but pretty much Washington did a very, very good job in, in choosing uh, with whom he would be, uh, uh, in, in whom he could confide, uh, whom he could trust. Uh, he could pick people. And he could pick his moment as well. He was, we can argue his merits as a tactical commander, in other words, a battlefield chieftain. But I think there's a difference between a general, a mere general, and a commander-in-chief. Uh, Washington was a commander-in-chief because he put the pieces together. Uh, he, he knew how to weight things out. He knew how to evaluate a situation. He knew how to evaluate people. And he knew when to seize the moment. And that put him, well, you know, head and shoulders above most of the other people that Americans could put into the field during that war. Uh, and, you know, his, his job was to win that war. And ultimately, he did. He did, ultimately. Uh, and uh, the job of, of William Howe was to win, and he didn't. Uh, the, the job of Henry Clinton was to win for the British, and he didn't. So, yes, uh, I, I think Washington... Uh, we learned a lot about that man, and I think we learned a lot about how he became president, too, because in the end, his ability to surmount all this uh, revealed qualities of, of personality and persistence, and, um, and in, in the context of the day, patriotism. Washington honestly believed in the American cause. There's, there's no question about that. And he imparted that to his staff. He imparted that to his army. And in the end, he imparted that to the public. And I, there was every reason that the republic, the new republic, turned to him as its first leader. The fact that he could survive this kind of blistering criticism at a time when he was trying to hold the army together. I mean, let's face it, uh, in the winter of early 1778, uh, that army was in trouble. I mean, the Valley Forge ordeal, ordeal was, was very much on, on his mind, and uh, you can imagine how he felt toward his critics when here he is doing his best to keep the army together and he's dealing with a board of war whose actions he saw as absolutely uh, almost you know, predatory against him. But um, he outlasted them all. He had political, political skills that, uh, that, frankly, his opponents lacked. And that carried him through. I think that carried him through to his presidency. Mark Edward Lender, thank you for joining us. And thank you very much for having me. I, I thoroughly enjoyed myself. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.